0: The FT.
1: Welcome to World Weekly with me, Gideon Rachman. This week, the battle to be president of the World Bank and the state of Iraq and its impact on the world oil markets. We start with the big issue in international economic diplomacy the contest to be the next president of the World Bank. Normally, in fact, it's no contest, an American gets the job. But this time there is much more discussion, with a lot of support being thrown behind Ngozi and Conjo the Nigerian finance minister, and some interest also in the candidacy of the Colombian, Jose Antonio Ocampo. So Jim Yong Kim, an American of Korean origin who's a university president and is America's nominee, does face a real challenge. To discuss all this, joining me on the line from Washington is Alan Beattie, our international economics correspondent, and from Nigeria we're joined by our correspondent, Zan Rice. Alan,
2: so is it a contest this time? Give us a sense of where where it stands at the moment. Well, at the moment, it's um, traveling around the world um, saying hello to governments and trying to get their, their backing uh, is what you can actually observe. I mean, in reality, for anyone other than the American candidate, Jim Yong Kim, to win, essentially the Europeans have to peel off and the Europeans have to um, vote for one of the emerging market candidates. That's kind of unlikely because the Americans did, after all, um, support their candidate, Christine Lagarde, to be head of the International Monetary Fund last year, which is the other traditional half of the stitch up. And so it would be quite dramatic if they if they voted for anyone other than the American candidate. But it's certainly true that, um, uh, you know, I, I think the moral victor may turn out to be, um, uh, Ngozi in particular, because she's, she's run a very tough campaign and it, it's, it's hard for anyone to, to say that the American candidate is definitively better than her.
1: OK, Zan, in, in Rice in, in Nigeria, give us a sense of Ngozi and What she What's she like and why is she the kind of person who seems to have excited so much international interest and support?
3: Well, there's, there's, there's several reasons. I think the first is, is her background. Um, you know, She spent more than two decades working at the World Bank, uh, most recently until last year when she returned to Nigeria to become finance minister for the second time. She's also had uh, four to five years in government, the first time from 2003 to 2006 as finance minister, when she was instrumental in, in helping Nigeria get an $18 billion bill from from the Paris Club she also subsequently served as as foreign minister for a couple of months so she's got experience on both sides both in helping govern one of the most difficult developing countries in the world um, but also um, working at at a pretty high level at the World Bank she's very well respected in Nigeria she's seen as one of the most um, competent I guess would be the word um, uh, cabinet minister she's also uh, untainted by corruption or anything like that and she's seen as a reformer so she's got a a very good reputation here, and I think a good reputation at the World Bank.
1: So, Alan, is that partly why there is, as you mentioned, a kind of sense that even if the American candidate does get it, people will feel it's a slightly kind of sleazy stitch-up because it's not obvious that he was the
2: best candidate? I think that's right. And the fact that the Americans um, waited till the last moment to unveil their candidate and various other candidates were mooted um, and then dropped suggests that they were kind of casting around. I mean, I, th- I don't think it's going too far to say that if anything, the American insistence on having the presidency still is a sign of weakness rather than of strength in the sense that the administration dare not go to their own Congress in an election year and say, hey, guess what, guys, uh, we've lost the presidency of the World Bank, but it's a very good Nigerian. How's about that? Um, so I, I think they, they felt it had to be someone, and they came up with the most plausible person, who is, I mean, perfectly plausible, but, but as I say, I, I don't think many people would think he's, he's definitively the best candidate. And how far does this reflect, this argument, the sense that the
1: world's changing, really, and that the idea that uh, Western powers should continue to dominate international institutions, well, maybe we can do it one more time with the IMF and the World Bank, but patience is, is running out for this.
2: That's absolutely true, but I mean, in the sense the, the, you know, the power shift has already happened in that um, because the World Bank has been dominated by
4: the rich countries for a long time and to some extent, to quite a lot of extent it's it reflected those rich countries preoccupations, um, particularly with hedging around a lot of the World Bank's activities, with lots of rules on environmental safeguards and human rights and so forth, um, with the result that, for example, the World Bank finds it very difficult to fund infrastructure, to fund you know, power stations and road and rail and so on which is exactly what all the big emerging markets its need. So what they've already done is gone and set up their own institutions. You know, China now lends more to middle-income countries than the World Bank does, um, and an institution called the Andean Development Corporation, of which uh, not that many people, even in Latin America, it's certainly not a household name in Latin America, um, actually lends more for infrastructure in Latin America than the World Bank and the Inter-American Development Bank, which is the regional bank, um, put together. So in a sense, you know, if, if the rich countries really want to continue holding on to the two institutions like the World Bank, they can do so. But I'm afraid that's likely to be at the expense of the institution itself and of the relevance and power of that institution. And
1: behind the kind of geopolitical arm wrestling over, you know, who gets the job, are there real policy differences between the three main candidates? And do they reflect their personalities
4: or where they come from? I mean, it's hard to tell because a lot of the time they're, they're campaigning in generalities. But certainly, if you look at their background, they're from quite different backgrounds. Um, I mean, Dr. Kim, the American candidate, is from a you know he's from a health background, a public health background, and you know there's a vision of the World Bank that it should concentrate on the very poorest countries, which is most of what his work has done, on countries like Rwanda and Haiti and so forth, um, and that it should look at things like health and education. And it should act largely as a kind of Uh, A a kind of grand technical consultancy, whereas the emerging market candidates are more from, funnily enough, they're more from a traditional American background. They're both um, trained in economics at U.S. universities. They've both been finance ministers, and they have actually both talked about the importance of the bank continuing to be involved with, with middle-income countries, with the likes of China and India and so on, not just concentrating on the poorest, and for it to to get back into its traditional activities like financing infrastructure. You know, the emerging market uh, candidates do come from these kind of new rising powers, but in many ways in their focus, they're, they're kind of going back to what the bank did 10 or 20 years ago before the rich countries pulled it onto a different course. Uh, Alan, you, you cover
1: the World Bank in Washington. What's your sense of what people working inside the institution feel about this contest do you
4: think they'll be uh, demoralized if if the American candidate gets it? You know, it depends entirely who you talk to, because one of the interesting things about the, the World Bank is, unlike, for example, the IMF um, over the road, uh, there are many, many visions within the World Bank of, of what it should be. And it's always said that the, the IMF operates... Um, a bit like the Red Army or the People's Liberation Army, um, whereas the World Bank is much more like a university faculty. No one quite agrees with each other. Everyone has different views. So I'm sure those people in the bank who work on health and education and so on will think it's great, whereas people with more of a background in economics, more of interest in, in just pure economic growth, will be disappointed.
1: Okay, and Zan, coming back to you in, in Nigeria, uh, is this a contest that's actually being followed with much interest in Nigeria, and do people think that Ngozi has, has a real chance?
3: Firstly, yes, very much interest. I mean, it's all over the papers here, front pages, back pages, opinion pages. Um, there's a tremendous deal of, of, of pride um, in the fact that, that Ngozi has has got the nomination. There's not all that much good news which comes out of Nigeria. So this, this is sort of a, a really good news story for the media here. Um, but there's also a realisation that she's very unlikely to, to win. Um, I don't think uh, many Nigerians expect her to get the job. Um, but just, just the sense that she's perhaps raising the profile of the country and that things might be, might be changing in the longer term at the World Bank, um, yeah, that, there's, there's a realisation of that.
1: Thank you, Zan Rice there in Lagos and Alan Beethy in Washington. Now to Iraq, which has just hosted an Arab League summit, an event that was meant to signify the country's return to normalcy. Michael Peel, our Middle East correspondents, been in Iraq, is still there, in fact, covering the summit and has also just visited Najaf. So, Michael, does it feel uh, as if this is a breakthrough for Iraq, holding the Arab League summit, that it can now say it's, it's something like a normal country again?
5: Well, I think that... It certainly did it a lot of good. There were a couple of rocket attacks, um, but there wasn't a major security incident. And of course, the Emir of Kuwait's visit, the first since the Iraqi invasion, was highly significant. Um, But on the other hand, there wasn't. A sense of reciprocity from the other Gulf states to some of the reaching out that uh, Iraq has done uh, over the past months. None of them, apart from Kuwait, sent heads of state. And of course, uh, the Saudi prime minister made some pretty critical remarks, which go to the heart of the tension shia-led government and the sunni ruled monarchies in, in the car criticizing the uh, iraqi government for marginalizing some groups including the sunni
1: to, to put it uh, bluntly michael i mean the the security picture viewed from outside has been so horrifying uh, do you actually feel safe in in iraq
5: well uh driving around baghdad um is is okay except there are certain sort of areas that You know, you want to be a little bit careful in, and uh, it's not uh, so normal. Like, as a foreigner, you would just jump in a taxi, and and especially at night, you have to be more careful. A lot of foreigners uh, still go around with security, although, although some don't. I've just been in Najaf today, um, the uh, holy uh, Shia place, the shrine of Imam Ali. Um, that touchwood has been trouble-free, um, but equally there are some towns that, as a, as a foreigner, particularly, it, w- it would be unwise to go to. There's tension, especially some of the Sunni areas where people are, are feeling uh, persecuted uh, by the, the government, which of course is Shia-led. Of course, the government. Denies doing this, but there is, you know, tangible tension there, which uh, you know still still threatens security in those areas. And from time to time, as we've seen there are still major, lethal and horrific incidents. Um, one just a couple of weeks ago, in which um, dozens of people were killed around the country.
1: Okay, last question. I mean, you, you you mentioned the Sunni-Shia splits, and that's obviously crucial to the internal stability of Iraq, but also to its position globally, and 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 perhaps why some of the countries boycotted the Arab League summit, do you feel uh, in any tangible way that you can sense Iraq moving in towards Iran, essentially towards an Iranian bloc in the region?
5: Well, that's a very interesting question. It's really quite a nuanced thing, because on the one hand, of course, what everyone looks at is there is the Shia. Connection, the affinity between the majority in uh, uh, in uh, Iraq and, and Shia Iran. Um, there is also the very practical connection that Nouri um, uh, al Maliki, the, the prime minister, his uh, Shia-led uh, uh, government um, has really uh, depended on uh, Iran for for a bit of heft and to to, to pull together the coalition that, that kept him in power. So in that sense, you know, a lot of analysts say he is beholden to Iran. But on the other hand, uh, you know, people say, you know, he's not a puppet. He, 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 uh, he wants to be independent. I think some people say that he's extremely autocratic, dangerously so. Um, but, but he does want to, uh, uh, to, to pursue an independent policy. And, of course, you know, Iraq um, has this uh, extraordinary uh, political and cultural history, which means there's a lot of national pride there which i think means that people um you know certainly well, many people would would be very unhappy the idea of, of, of being seen as or being in fact um, uh, a puppet of iran iranian lackeys and don't forget of course that you know the for all of the religious uh, uh connections there are also very important differences of culture ethnicity and language
1: that was michael peel in baghdad now joining me in the studio here in london is guy chazan our energy correspondent Guy, one of the big questions about Iraq and uh, one of the arguments about the war was whether this was a war for oil. Now,
6: as Iraq sort of stabilizes, is its impact on the world oil market yet becoming apparent? It actually is. I mean, what you're seeing now, which is uh, quite extraordinary, is a huge surge in Iraqi exports of oil. Um, For example, uh, this month, the latest figures show that Iraq's crude oil exports rose to their highest level since 2003, which is about 2.317 million barrels barrels a day. And they are just like firing on all cylinders. I think they were producing something like 3 million barrels a day at one point uh, in February. So production and exports are really are really rising to new highs. The export issue is very interesting. What they've basically done is they've um, just uh, inaugurated a new export terminal out in the Gulf which uh, will solve a lot of the export bottlenecks they have that have really impacted their ability to just ship their oil to uh, world markets. And there's going to be four of these uh, these terminals uh, are going to be launched over the coming months, and that will significantly boost uh, Iraq's export capacity.
1: Now you say three million barrels a day. Give us a sense of where that fits into the world market. And specifically, we're talking at the moment at a time of tightening oil prices. You know, people running for re-election like Obama and even Sarkozy slightly panicking about the impact on prices at the pump. Is Iraq... Yet a significant enough producer to ease the tightness in world supply?
6: Well, it would be, but there have been so many supply disruptions on the other side that have sort of counteracted that. You know, we've seen outages in South Sudan, places like, you know, Colombia, Yemen, Syria, of course. Uh, that has tended to sort of mitigate in the other direction so that we haven't really felt the real impact of this uh, ramp-up in Iraqi exports. The fact is that this is a trend that's going to continue... Uh, and uh, possibly accelerate. I mean, the Iraqis have very ambitious plans for increasing production uh, and export capacity. So perhaps it's not something that we're going to see, you know, the impact of in the next couple of months. But I think over the long term, definitely. I mean, there's talk of Iraq really becoming almost like uh, a swing producer on the scale of Saudi Arabia, which would just be extraordinary. Indeed. and I mean, I alluded earlier to the allegation
1: that America fought a war for oil. But from what I can gather, the major foreign investors are not actually American, or the Americans only playing a, you know one part of it. And and I guess Iraq's major markets are also not the US. Is that correct?
6: That's true. Yeah. I mean, I think that the biggest investors in in Iraq, are, you know, European companies like BP and Shell, uh, BP, Shell, Total is in there. Lukoil, a Russian company, um, Is CNPC, uh,
1: the Chinese company.
6: Uh, CNPC is uh, partnering BP in the big Rumaila field, which is one of the large. Just oil fields in the world, uh, which has been a huge success story since BP came in there. Exxon is an interesting case study. They have actually come into Iraq, obviously a, a, an American company, they've come in, they're doing a very big project there, but they're doing an, a rather controversial thing, which is trying to move into the Kurdistan, uh, the northern part of uh, Iraq. They have signed a few exploration deals with the Kurdistan Regional Government, the KRG, And that is being seen as an interesting kind of test case because the Iraqis have said that any company that signs deals with the KRG is basically blacklisted uh, and can't do any deals in in Iraq proper. Now, Exxon is testing that to see if it will be allowed to do both. And uh, the jury's out. No one really knows how that's going to go.
1: And in terms of markets, I mean, is all this oil, as it emerges from, from the region heading west towards Europe and the US, or is it increasingly going to Asia?
6: Um, I think at the moment, you know, all roads lead to Asia in terms of oil markets, especially with the US becoming increasingly self-sufficient in in oil. Uh, Obviously, oil is a fungible commodity, and the oil that comes into world markets can go anywhere. But I think that Iraqi oil generally has more of a tendency to head east than west. Okay, final question. We were
1: talking earlier to, to Michael Peel about To what extent Iraq can be called a, you know, inverted commas, normal country and to what extent it's stabilised. Do you think it might uh, even, if it really manages to tap into its oil wealth, become really quite a wealthy country like the other Gulf states?
6: Well, potentially, yes. I mean, uh, certainly the contracts that they've signed with the international oil majors are not great for the for, for for the companies. They deliver a lot of upside to the, the Iraqi government, and BP was telling me that um, you know they're, they're just earning billions and billions of dollars for the Iraqi government by increasing production from this big field, Rumaila. Uh, which does suggest that, in a sense, there's going to be a windfall, really, for the uh, for the Iraqi authorities, especially with the oil price being so high at the moment. Whether that's going to trickle down to the general population, as I think, uh, is we'll moot end up at the in moment. the
1: pockets of uh, ministers and bureaucrats, <laughs> exactly. as, as tends to happen. yes. OK, well, Guy, thank you very much indeed for that. And that's it for this week. My thanks also to Michael Peel in Baghdad, to Alan Beatty in Washington and Zan Rice in Lagos, and also to the production team here in London. Until next
2: week... Goodbye. For more downloads, go to Ft.com forward slash podcasts.
0: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the US, Corient has experienced teams. Who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals no matter how complex? Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a Wealth Advisor today at corient.com. That's corient.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com.